millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm going to be talking uh, a little bit about the strategic position that Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire found themselves in in the summer and autumn of 1914. So today I'm looking at uh, Ring of Steel by um, Alexander Watson which if you haven't already read it is one of the best modern accounts of the war from uh, a Germanocentric uh, point of view. Too often, I feel, um, the First World War is told to us um, as a story of the primarily the British on the Western Front. And um, the Germanic uh, worldview uh, during the First World War is fundamentally different, obviously, and tells us um, a, a, a different and no less relevant story. So, um, there is a huge strategic problem um, in the summer of 1914. Um, and it is the problem that Bismarck had tried to avoid since 1871 to 1890, and that was the development of a two-front war. Um, Germany was um, at its best when it was able to fight a war on, on one front. Uh, the German army um, reorganised, uh, well, the Prussian army, shall we say, um, throughout the um, 1840s, 50s and 60s um, was the uh, best organised and uh, best led uh, fighting force in Europe um, defeating the French in 1871 but Bismarck was well aware that um, the problem that Germany would always face um, is that it is a central European power um, easily surrounded and Bismarck's um, policy of isolating France from either uh, Russia or um, Austria-Hungary had only a, a certain lifespan. And the alliance system, the Dreikaiserbund, and then the dual alliance, and then the triple alliance that Bismarck uh, created um, after 1871 um, meant that for uh, as long as possible... Uh, France might be isolated 
and that France might not find an ally in the East. But by the 1890s, having seen um, the, the diplomatic position, the diplomatic uh, network that Bismarck created uh, gradually unravel, and, and it had begun to unravel before Bismarck's dismissal in 1890 anyway. It was only accelerated by this process. Um, a realignment sees uh, Germany um, with the uh, German Empire and uh, its only ally, the Austrian Empire, surrounded by a hostile Russia in the east and a hostile France in the west. So here begins the, uh, the strategic problem that Bismarck had always sought to avoid, uh, the war on two fronts a war of attrition it would ultimately wind up being. The German Empire can fight lightning wars, quick wars, very successfully. Wars of attrition, not so much. So, Alexander Watson writes, The German and Habsburg general staffs confronted a strategic nightmare in the summer of 1914. Each faced a war on two fronts. To Germany's west stood the modern French, Belgian and British armies, opposite Austria-Hungary's southeastern border were the battle-hardened Serbian and Montenegrin troops, and in the east over both loomed the mighty Russian military. Together these enemies fielded 5,726,000 soldiers, organised into 218 infantry and 49 cavalry divisions. Against them the central powers had just 3,485,000 men in 137 infantry and 22 cavalry divisions. German and Austro-Hungarian generals knew that if victory were to be won, despite their forces' numerical inferiority, it would have to be quickly, for the odds against them would only lengthen in a prolonged conflict. France and Russia's combined gross domestic product exceeded that of the Central Powers by one-fifth, and the Tsarist Empire's population alone outnumbered the, their, their inhabitants by one-third. Moreover, German military planners had assumed since 1908 that Britain would inevitably, if not immediately, enter hostilities um, and place its enormous financial and naval resources at the Entente's disposal. Here there were sound domestic reasons to fear a long conflict. Habsburg leaders, already anxious about their people's loyalties in peace, could scarcely welcome the destabilising hardship and discontents that would accompany extended hostilities. Alfred Graf von Schlieffen, the chief of the Prussian general staff from 1891 to 1905, had predicted that any drawn-out war would bring economic ruin and quite probably revolution. So in that last um, part of the passage from um, Alexander Watson there, the statement uh, ascribed to uh, Schlieffen, uh, the devisor of the Schlieffen plan, um, to uh, have a lightning attack in the West uh, against France to seize Paris very quickly um, and then to um, mobilise against the much slower Russia. Um, that plan by 1914 was already nearly a decade out of date um, and did not take into account the fact that Russian mobilisation times had dramatically improved because of the development of railways in Russia and that um, France might put up more of a fight than expected, the slowing down the advances on the, the Western Front, which is ultimately what happens. So the Schlieffen plan isn't fit for purpose uh, in 1914. But what Schlieffen was um, predicting about revolution is entirely uh, in, in, entirely prescient. 
Schlieffen, um, in his um, statement, argued that um, the massive financial costs of the war would bring both empires to their knees and push them close to kind of revolutionary disturbances, which is ultimately what happens in the cases of both uh, Austro-Hungary and um, in the case of the German Empire. And of course it happened in Russia uh, a year before the war ended. And there were revolutionary disturbances in the French army and significant um, disturbances, whether they were of a revolutionary nature or not, but significant unrest uh, on the home front in Great Britain and also in America. So, uh, in a way, all combatant powers were trying to outrun revolution by the last couple of years of the war. And the other significant factor in that uh, passage from Watson is the idea that um, Austria-Hungary was uh, concerned about war because of its uh, fissile nature, the fact that it is likely to break apart, that it already has significant nationalist pressures from Czechs, Croats, uh, Bosnians, um, Italians uh, and others, um, and that it might well um, fragment entirely under the pressure of war. So what this meant was that in 1914, um, absolute annihilation of the enemy uh, becomes imperative. Why? Because the war has to be won quickly. Um, the uh, ruthless battlefield um, tactics and um, the uh, ruthless attitude uh, as well um, that was in, uh, written into German military law about dealing with um, fifth columnists, partisans and potential revolutionaries reflected not only the speed with which Germany had to win the war but also uh, German and Austrian anxieties about revolution. Given the fact that in the summer of 1914 the Kaiser uh, famously offered the uh, Austro-Hungarian Habsburg crown the blank check, the um, idea that no matter what Austria did, Germany would support it. Um, and the fact that the Kaiser did this because if Austria were to be defeated, um, then Germany would really be abandoned, isolated and alone, surrounded by uh, hostile enemies. Um, it seems curious that there was, uh, in the run-up to the war, in the decade uh, run-up to the war, there was very little um, collaboration or communication between the general staffs of both armies. Um, when In the case of Schlieffen, who was highly secretive about his plans and really quite dismissive about the abilities of the uh, Austro-Hungarians to, to fight, he made sure that there was uh, limited um, contact between the chiefs of the general staffs of both armies which are really limited to pleasantries and, as, as Watson points out, just simply to, to Christmas cards, which seems a bit absurd but true. Um, when um, Helmuth von Moltke and uh, Franz Conrad von Hotzendorf uh, became the heads of the um, chiefs of staff um, of the uh, German and Austrian armies, uh, respectively, during 1906, things began to change. This was added to by the tensions that were sparked by the Bosnian crisis in 1908 
and both chiefs of staff realised that they had to communicate with one another and they would need to rely on one another uh, in the future. However, um, neither the uh, Austro-Hungarian nor the German government's um, political or um, monarchical um, at the political or monarchical uh, levels um, had any real interest in, in uh, further collaboration. So it became more of a private affair between Helmuth von Moltke and Franz Konrad von Hotzendorf. Um, so, for example, in 1909, the Austro-Hungarians um, were told that in a two-front war, the Germans would... Um, deploy the majority of their forces immediately uh, in the West um, and therefore uh, Moltke would need the Austrians to um, uh, launch an offensive against the Russians in order to distract them from the um, weaker eastern border um, of Germany um, while, the army, uh, while the German army quickly defeated France. So, in order to reassure Austria, um, Moltke uh, promised Conrad that, uh, that whatever small forces that were left um, would attack in order to draw off as many enemy soldiers away from Austria um, as possible. Um, the Habsburg chief of the general staff, um, when hearing this, um, saw the prospect of taking on most of the Tsarist army uh, in uh, um, but in 1914, highly daunting. Um, there is no question uh, in uh, uh, the fact that uh, alone Austria faced very little chance uh, against the might of Russia. And from 1909 onwards, when these conversations were uh, being um, transmitted, the the Moltke sort of pledge seemed highly un unrealistic. Um, the uh, this became more so, um, uh, you know, more acute um, in the five years that followed as Russia rapidly rearmed and modernised uh, and a kind of a, 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 military, a militarised industrial revolution, particularly with the militarised use of railways, was... Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Uh, underway, and this meant that um, deployment plans became uh, increasingly redundant. Um, Comrade did not uh, demand too much uh, from Moltke for more a more kind of uh, detailed commitment. When a German victory in, in the West 
um, uh, was possible, or if if and when a German victory in the West happened, um, uh, and that would be be accompanied by um, a, a defensive action by the Habsburg uh, armies, keeping the Russians out, then uh, it was loosely assured to the Austrians the German army would be transferred eastwards, and that would enable the Central Powers together to overwhelm Russia. Um, and this was the only assurance that uh, Conrad sought. Um, and it meant that Conrad, knowing this, knowing basically what the Schlieffen plan said, felt fairly comfortable to place his forces um, in, the, uh, in a way in which a confrontation with Serbia could happen. Um, the protector of Serbia obviously being the Russian Empire. And this seems to be the thing that is um, foremost in the minds of the Austrian chiefs of general staff, was that with Germany around, there is an opportunity to do something about the Serbs. Uh, Perhaps it was never quite believed that um, Austria would come to blows with Russia anyway, but it was certainly presumed that uh, um, the Serbs, the great thorn in Austria's side would need to be dealt with somehow or other. And perhaps what Germany represented uh, at at its best, as far as the Austrians were concerned, was an insurance policy that would keep the Russians at bay and keep the Russians from meddling in what the Austrians believed to be Austrian Balkan affairs. Alexander Watson writes, The German campaign plan for the Western Front was the keystone of the Central Powers strategy in 1914. Moltke was broadly correct when he told Conrad in February 1913 that Austria's fate will not be decided definitively along the Bug, um, the uh, central uh, river in Poland, but rather along the Seine in France. His aim was to turn encirclement to advantage concentrate his forces overwhelmingly against France, and then, once that enemy was eliminated, use the Reich's efficient railway system to transport them eastwards. Time was critical. If the Western campaign took longer than six weeks, the slow but powerful Russian army would be able to mobilise fully, giving it the opportunity to overwhelm the Austro-Hungarians in Galicia and to weaken German, uh, uh, and the weak German force left in East Prussia. The German chief of staff's key challenge was thus to defeat France quickly. German officers in the war's aftermath claimed that the answer to this problem was bequeathed to Moltke in a memorandum written in 1905-6 by his illustrious predecessor, the infamous Schlieffen Plan. This plan envisaged an army of 96 infantry divisions, 82 of which later joined by five others from the south, were to be deployed as a strong right wing between the Metz and uh, Aachen and tasked with sweeping through the Benelux countries in order to bypass France's chain of border fortresses and break up its northeastern uh, break up uh, break into its northeast. The point of Schlieffen's plan was not contrary to an oft repeated claim to capture Paris, a highly undesirable last resort necessarily only if the enemy retreated so far that his left flank rested on the fortified city. Instead, 
the plan's primary objective was uh, the envelopment, where that might prove possible, and through it, the annihilation of France's army. So the key objective of the Schlieffen plan was to surround France's armies and destroy them. Part of the Schlieffen plan, coming through uh, Belgium and the Netherlands, was also to seize the, the five main channel ports, uh, and in doing so, cut off the British, uh, cut off either uh, the British who uh, were going to arrive, we tried to do it quickly before British troops landed, or those that had arrived, uh, to cut them off from reinforcements. So despite the fact that Moltke paid more attention, by and large, to uh, German-Austrian relations, he was still hugely influenced by the Schlieffen Memorandum, or the, the Schlieffen Plan. Uh, and he saw the strong uh, right wing of the German army um, carving through Belgium and outflanking the French fortresses um, as the, the, key, uh, the key objective of the campaign on the Western Front. Um, and also the uh, policy of envelopment and encirclement. And this um, paints a picture of the German army as Moltke envisaged it, engaged in a dramatic war of movement, a very, very quick war, not the stalemate war of position that the German army winds up in in 1914. Alexander Watson writes, Moltke worked in far less favourable circumstances. He was confronted not only with a two-front war, which necessitated leaving nine divisions in the east, but also with a Western enemy likely to fight more aggressively than ten years earlier. He was also pessimistic, or rather more realistic, about many of the assumptions built into the Schlieffen plan. Consequently, he introduced important modifications, most notably, and against his predecessor's legendary deathbed exhortation to keep the right wing strong, he weakened it. Whereas Schlieffen placed 87 divisions there, Moltke only had 54. The ratio of forces between the left and the right wings was also changed. From 1 in 7 in the original 1906, uh, 5 to 1906 plan to 1 in 3 in 1914. To Moltke's post-war denigrators, this was a disastrous decision that cost Germany its chance of an early victory. In actuality, it made a lot of sense. Moltke needed fewer, fewer divisions on the right because, unlike Schlieffen, he neither intended his troops to march through, the, uh, through um, Dutch as well as Belgian territory, nor in uh, any circumstances to march around Paris. Taking on Holland, he recognised, would absorb considerable strength better deployed against Germany's real enemies. Moreover, Moltke knew his plan was already a high-risk enterprise. He wanted insurance and hoped that if the initial offensive failed and the static war developed, a neutral Holland might act as a windpipe through which the blockaded Reich could funnel goods and raw materials. So this is a clue about Moltke's pessimism. He rightly predicted that a uh, fierce resistance from France and also assistance from Britain might wind up leaving the, uh, the Reich uh, blockaded, uh, as it did become, and so um, trying to use the Netherlands as a route for goods and materials into Germany um, was an important part of the strategy. Not that the Netherlands really becomes that. However, the other 
part of the, the kind of the more pessimistic view that Moltke had, the more defensive-based view that Moltke had, was that the Tsar, the industrial heartland of uh, Western Germany, um, needed to be protected, um, and that the troops that he didn't spend uh, on the right-wing uh, march through the Benelux countries um, could be moved to the, the left wing of the German Western uh, attack and used uh, and 16 divisions could be used in order to protect the Tsar. This was based on the assumption that the war would not be won quickly. Again, part of Moltke's more pessimistic outlook, his assumption that the war might well drag on and you know, uh, precautions needed to be taken uh, as a result. Many of the assumptions of the German army had been based on the uh, disaster of the French army in uh, 1870 in the Franco-Prussian War, where incompetent generals, poorly led soldiers, uh, old equipment uh, and um, a sort of uh, archaic internal communication system within the French army led to its, its rapid defeat. It was assumed by the German army that the same thing could be possible in 1914. Within six weeks, uh, once again, uh, the French army could be surrounded and uh, defeated. However, this is a very different French army that the Germans are dealing with. Uh, this was a wildly ambitious, not to say highly reckless, uh, uh, plan that had uh, very little chance within a six-week period of actually succeeding. And uh, when the French and the British hold the line at the uh, Battle of the Marne, the German um, War of Encirclement ends. And because the German War of Encirclement ends after just a few weeks, it means that the uh, Germans and the Austrians are only capable of fighting of a war of position from then onwards. Um, being able to rapidly move troops uh, across the battlefield, carry out encirclements and the destruction of enemy armies um, at, uh, at the pace at which um, Germany wanted, at the, the pace at which uh, that would ensure a German victory uh, becomes impossible. And from that moment on, the clock is ticking for Germany's defeat. Germany fights a, a number of um, offensives in 1915, 16 uh, and 17 uh, and finally the Ludendorff offensive in 1918 but with each offensive Germany uh, isn't able to land a knockout blow and expends that what is left of its own energies in uh, trying to do this and brings itself uh, and its ally Austria that much closer to total economic and political exhaustion and ultimately defeat. And it is defeat that comes in the guise of revolution. Uh, Germany's own uh, working classes and soldiers are the ones that finally end the war. OK, so thanks very much for listening and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Uh, if you can support us by Patreon, that's very gratefully received. Check out our Explaining History Patreon page. Because uh, we do rely on advertising revenue, which ain't very much, and the generosity of funders. Thanks very much. All the best. Bye-bye. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.